Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at three stories selected by Mark that aim to influence and shape our view of Jesus, and more specifically, the power of his word. First, in the last few verses of Mark chapter 4, we witness Jesus bringing calm to the storm. In doing so, Jesus demonstrated authority over the natural world. Secondly, in the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 5, Jesus liberates a man from demon possession. In doing so, Jesus demonstrates authority over the supernatural world. Finally, in our last story we'll be looking at, beginning with the 21st verse of Mark chapter 5, we're going to witness this morning Jesus healing a woman of a a debilitating ailment and raising a little girl from the dead. In doing so, we'll see Jesus' authority over death and human sickness. Authority over the natural world, authority over the supernatural world, and Jesus' word having authority over death. Verse 21. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side. Jesus had originally left Capernaum for Gadara because he had a scheduled appointment with a demoniac. After liberating this man from his bondage, Jesus equips him with a commission. A commission, by the way, that he equips each of us with. Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. Jesus then gets back into the boat and makes his way across the Sea of Galilee to the home camp there in Capernaum. We're told that upon his arrival, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. You can picture the scene unfolding. Jesus is reaching the shore, and people recognize the boat. Word begins to spread throughout the town that Jesus is coming back, that Jesus is about to dock there in Capernaum. People begin to flock out in droves, hoping to get a glimpse of Jesus, hoping to encounter Jesus, hoping to hear Jesus speak. There's an excitement. We discover that within the crowd waiting on the shore for Jesus' arrival, a ruler of the synagogue came. Jarius by name. Now, now, there's some, and there's a debate whether his name is Jarius or Jairus. I grew up Southern, and so whether it's correct or whether it's not, we're just going to call him Jarius. Good old Jarius, as opposed to Jairus. It just doesn't come off the tongue as well. So if I'm butchering his name, then I'll apologize when we're in heaven. So Jarius, this is his name. He's a ruler of the synagogue. He came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he begged him earnestly, saying, My little girl lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands upon her that she may be healed, and she will live. Now, don't overlook the power of the the scene. I mean, this scene of activity is quite radical, This religious ruler, Jarius, a man of renown, a man of prestige, he comes to Jesus, and I can see him dressed in his ornate robes and imperious attire. He's pushing through the crowd of onlookers there on the shore of Galilee. He arrives. He sees Jesus. 
He falls down in the dirt and the sand. He lays himself out prostrate at the feet of Jesus. It's radical. And he's begging Jesus that he might come to his home and heal his daughter. Now, before we go any further, there are some important things that we learn about Jairus from just these few verses, some things we should consider. First, it's obvious, it's evident, it's undeniable that Jairus was willing to take a risk. For a ruler of the synagogue to come and to even associate himself with Jesus at this point in Jesus' ministry was radical, if not downright risky. Don't forget, as we've already been told by Mark, at this point, Jesus was a wanted man. The political, the religious establishment, they had come together and hatched a plot to destroy Jesus. The gears were in motion. The only thing that they were waiting on was the right time and the right place to move in for an arrest. Jairus was taking a huge risk. And coming to Jesus, he was risking his position and his power within the community. Jairus was risking his reputation and his relationship with his peers by aligning himself with the enemy of his superiors. There is no doubt that Jairus was risking current livelihood and future employment. Coming to and associating with Jesus at such a time, and mainly in such a public way, was indeed risky business. So we have to ask, we have to consider, why would Jarius do it? Which leads us to the second thing we learn about Jarius. He was a desperate man. To think coming to Jesus was Jarius' first option, and a long list of options, would be to miss the obvious point. Mark is clear in our text that it was only when his daughter had reached the point of death that he came. He didn't come to Jesus when she was showing symptoms. She, he didn't come to Jesus when her symptoms were becoming worse and more dangerous. It was only when she had reached the point of death that he came. I can imagine that Jairus had exhausted every possible resource available to him before he finally broke down, came to the shore, and fell at the feet of Jesus. Because for a ruler of the synagogue, he being wealthy, money was no obstacle for Jairus. His daughter had undoubtedly been taken to the brightest doctors, was afforded the best health care of her day. However, despite the doctor's attempts and their best efforts, science and medical expertise had failed to provide a remedy. Because Jarius was a religious leader, you can imagine that they had exhausted every possible religious exercise or religious tradition recommended to deal with disease. Any traditional practice that could be performed to try to heal this little girl of her sickness was afforded Jarius. But sadly, these religious traditions had also failed to provide a remedy. You have to consider, as a member of the religious class, Jairus was familiar with Jesus' ministry. He had heard Jesus speak. He had witnessed miracles performed by Christ. He had personally seen lives transformed. And like the religious establishment, 
Jairus had also rejected Jesus' Messiahship and actively participated in the plot to destroy him. So what changed in Jairus that he would now come at this moment and fall at the feet of Jesus? Understand, Jairus didn't come to Jesus because it was his last option. He came to Jesus because at this point, it was his only option. I find that this is insightful. Jairus' desperation bringing him to Christ. It is much harder to reject the truth in a moment of absolute despair than it is from the place of blissful ignorance. I'll repeat that just so you wrap your brain around it. It is much harder, much more difficult to reject the truth in a moment of absolute despair than it is from the place of blissful ignorance. Let me give you a few examples to illustrate this point. You can refuse to believe that smoking causes cancer. I mean, you can put yourself on some high horse and deny all the science and all the evidence. You can say, smoking doesn't cause cancer. It has no effect on me. Blissful ignorance. Until you get diagnosed with cancer and you start hacking up blood. At that point, in the moment of absolute despair, it's a lot more difficult to reject the reality that smoking causes cancer. You know, you can refuse to believe that you're overweight, blissful ignorance, until you can no longer wear your favorite pair of jeans. And in that moment, by the way, it's not the jeans' fault. When someone says, do these jeans make me look fat? The appropriate answer is no, your fat makes you look fat. The jeans are just doing what they do. Blissful ignorance goes away when we're left with absolute despair. You know, you can refuse to believe a high school diploma isn't an important thing. Blissful ignorance. Until the only job you can get with your GED was featured on the show Dirty Jobs. Absolute despair. You can refuse to believe your children are out of control. Blissful ignorance. I mean, you can blame it on everybody else. Until you get a 3 a.m. phone call from the police saying your kid was arrested for possession and driving 300 miles an hour down Highway 316. Absolute despair. It's easy to reject the truth when you're in a state of blissful ignorance. However, absolute despair, desperation, has a way of forcing you to face the reality you might otherwise rather avoid. This is what happened to Jarius. It was easier for him to reject the truth about Jesus, to reject his messiahship, to reject the miracles, to reject his work, to reject his position, to reject his word. It was easier for Jarius to reject all that was Jesus until his daughter became ill and nothing he tried to do seemed to help and he could no longer logically remain ignorant. Jarius was forced into a much more honest examination of the truth. And the result? He came running to Jesus. The third thing we learn about Jarius is that he demonstrated humility and brokenness. 
Now, knowing the climate that surrounded Jesus, Jairus' actions this day would have drawn the scorn of his contemporaries, and his actions, you can go so far as to say, were even scandalous. Now, it's easy to conclude the manner in which Jairus approached Jesus that day in Galilee uh, was reverential and respectful. But understand, from a cultural perspective, what Jairus did that moment, that day, well, it revealed much more than this. Though we've seen examples of sinners coming to Jesus in a similar manner as Jairus, understand, never would a member of the religious class act in such a way. Never. As a matter of fact, in scripture, we don't have any other mention of anyone in the religious establishment coming to Jesus in such a way as Jairus. The only other mention we have of anyone of the religious establishment coming to Jesus at all was Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But we're told very specifically that Nicodemus didn't even come in a public way. He came when it was dark. He came at nighttime when no one could see him to pose an honest question. What Jarius did here, it's radical. He didn't approach Jesus as a superior. I mean, it's not as though Jarius uh, demanded, you know, sent for Jesus to come to be brought to him. He didn't present a list of demands to Jesus that Jarius, as a ruler of the synagogue, might have felt entitled to. Jairus didn't approach Jesus as an equal. He didn't pull Jesus aside so that they could speak in private. It wasn't as though Jairus, kind of from one teacher to another, asked for a professional courtesy be shown his way. No, Jairus came to Jesus that day as a servant. As a servant. Jairus, he didn't care about the whispers of the crowd. He didn't care what his colleagues might have thought. He no longer cared about cultural position or religious posturing. Jarius didn't come barking orders, making demands, or seeking favors. He came as a man broken, broken of his pride. He came in humility, begging that Jesus would come to his house and heal his little girl. Ultimately, we see that Jarius demonstrated faith. Faith in Jesus. Faith can be defined as the spiritual muscle that connects what a person claims to believe and how a person chooses to behave. Faith, in a much more simplistic definition, bridges beliefs to obedience. Please realize, beliefs were never Jarius's problem. At any point in our story, belief was never a problem that Jairus had. Even the enemies of Jesus believed that Jesus had the power to heal people of sickness. Now they logically reasoned it away by saying that he had this authority, he had this power, he was able to perform supernatural works because he had been given authority uh, from Satan. But they never doubted his ability to perform the supernatural. Belief... And Jesus' ability was never Jairus' problem. His problem, though, was that his belief had not produced action. Even knowing that Jesus could heal his little girl, 
He didn't come to Jesus when she was diagnosed, when she was showing the early signs. He didn't come to Jesus when uh, the symptoms got worse. He didn't come to Jesus until she was at the point of death. His beliefs were not what failed him. It was that he failed to act upon his beliefs, revealing a lack of faith. You see, understand, Jairus only demonstrated faith when in humility and in brokenness, he acted on what he knew. When he came to Jesus out of desperation and fell at, at his feet and asked that Jesus might come and lay his hands on her. And then he says that she may be healed and she will live. Jairus didn't doubt it, but we see faith demonstrated when he finally acted. And you know what? Actions speak louder. Jesus always responds to faith. Verse 24, so Jesus went with him. And a great multitude followed him and thronged him. And there was a certain woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had. It was no better but rather grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him and the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. And immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she had been healed of the affliction. Now let's get back to our scene of activity. Jesus leaving the shore, is making his way to Jairus' home when Mark tells us that the multitude that followed Jesus thronged him. Literally, they packed in around him as he's making his way down the first century Arab street. The journey became difficult and definitely more laborious because of the crowd clamoring uh, to be around Jesus. I am sure as they are making their way down this street, that Jarius is on edge. His daughter is on the clock. Door is at the footstep. He needs to get Jesus home quick before it's too late. I can see Jarius welled with excitement that Jesus is going to come to his home. Anticipation, thinking, yes, this will be the solution. But then as they slow, as the multitude begins to funnel its way down into this small street, he's yelling for people to get out of the way. I can also see, in addition to, to Jarius kind of being on edge, that the disciples were probably also a little frantic. Don't forget the reason that they stayed near the shore, that Jesus' ministry was often performed there at the Sea of Galilee, was mainly for crowd control. So many people piled into such a confined space as this street, well, it could prove dangerous. I'm sure the disciples have this protective ring around Jesus. They're fighting to keep the multitudes off. They're yelling out, back off and just give us a little space. The scene, it's crazy. It's out of control. But something unforeseen takes place in the shadows. Mark says that within this mob, packed into this street, a certain woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years, 
She works her way through the mob. She's making her way through the onlookers and the bystanders. She's getting within arm's reach, and she reaches out, and she grabs hold of the hem, we're told, of his garment, and she was healed. Now, before we proceed further, consider the woman. What do we know? We actually know a lot. First, she was physically ill. That's obvious. Mark provides for us two reasons for her ailments. We're told that she had a flow of blood for 12 years. Though it's difficult to say with certainty what caused this continual menstruation, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to concede that a 12-year period was terrible. I mean, really, the cramps, the inconvenience, 12 years of constant discomfort would drive anyone crazy, would drive anyone to the point of despair. But we're also told, in addition to the condition, that she had suffered many things from many physicians. In the first century, medical practices, especially if they had no idea what was causing the condition, were known to be barbaric. Not only had the doctors failed to successfully diagnose and treat her condition, apparently the treatments, according to Mark, had only made matters worse for this poor lady. We're also told that she was financially broke. Mark says that she had spent all, of, all that she had and was no better for it. I guess her health insurance company had failed to get the memo that you couldn't reject a person on the basis of pre-existing condition. This woman had spent her entire fortune, her entire wealth, trying to get better, trying to get well, but she had gotten worse. No better for it, and now she was broke. Certainly desperate. We also can surmise that she was ceremonially unclean. According to Leviticus, during a woman's menstrual cycle, she was considered unclean according to the law. And therefore, because she was unclean, she was banned during that time from religious exercises. But because this woman's flow of blood had lasted for 12 years, it had never ended. During this time, she had been banned from temple worship. She had been banned from offering sacrifices. She had been banned from attending synagogue. She had been banned from the religious community. 12 years she had been ostracized. We also can conclude that she had been socially scorned. According to the law, uncleanness was transferable. Because her condition had made her ceremonially unclean, she was forbidden from human contact. Now, though the passage doesn't tell us a lot about this woman, I don't think it's too far out of the realm of possibility to speculate that she had really suffered because of this, because she was forbidden human contact, and it lasted for 12 years, very possibly her husband had divorced her. This was permitted according to the law. Because she was forbidden human touch, she was forced to watch her kids grow up at a distance. Can you imagine not being able to hold your baby or your child, brutal. Even her loved ones, I'm sure by this point, had all but abandoned her. She had been socially scorned. 
but she was also spiritually condemned. It was a common belief that a condition like hers would have been evidence of some kind of sin and thus was the judgment of God. You can imagine the emotional torment this woman experienced, having people constantly look at her, seeing her life fall apart and conclude that it was sin, that she was judged, that she was constantly having her character and her integrity questioned when she had done nothing wrong. But like Jairus, what do we learn? This woman had faith in Jesus. Mark provides this woman's own reasoning as to why she had made such a daring move to reach out and touch Jesus in the first place. I don't know if you noticed that. Mark actually provides us a quote from this woman. Probably after the fact, Mark, as he's putting together his narration here, as he's recounting the life of Christ from the perspective of Jesus, this woman was probably around. And he asked her to give her explanation for why she had made such a daring move. And she tells Mark, and thus Mark tells us, that this was her reason. She said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. What faith? That she believed. Her reasoning is if I can just work my way through the crowd, if I can just get close enough, even if he doesn't see me, even if he doesn't know, I know there's power. If I can just grab hold of the hem of his garment, I know I will be made well. It's amazing. She believed and she acted upon her beliefs, which leads me to an interesting observation. Like many others recorded in the Gospels, when you reach out and touch Jesus, like, like, like Jarius, take Jarius for a moment. Jarius believed that if Jesus would just come, and reach out and touch his little girl. That there was power in Jesus touching a life, right? So many people in the Gospels are coming to Jesus, wanting Jesus to touch them and heal them of their infirmities. But this woman, in contrast, does something different. It's kind of, a, in, in many ways, a reverse touch. She believed that if she could touch Jesus, she would be made well. I mean, really, I think this is unique to just this woman. Most people came wanting Jesus to touch them. She came desiring to touch Jesus. Could it be that there is just as much power when you reach out and touch Jesus as there is when he reaches down to touch you? Sometimes instead of sitting back and waiting for Jesus to reach down and touch you and work in your life, maybe you should break the ice and instead reach up and grab hold of him. That you should bear the responsibility. This morning, if you find yourself physically ill or financially broke, if you've really messed up or made a real mess of things, if you're sitting there feeling condemned in your sin, if you're at a point of desperation, may I encourage you not to wait for Jesus but instead to reach out in faith and grab hold of him. This woman did this. She reached out in faith. She grabbed hold of his garment, and immediately she was healed of her affliction. Let's dive back into our scene. 
Verse 30, and Jesus immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him. Now, how this happened, I have no idea. I'm just going to be honest with you. How Jesus realized that power had left him to heal this woman, we have no clue. No one knows how this happened, but there were two people in the crowd that knew what had happened. The woman knew what had happened, and Jesus knew what had happened, for he stopped. And he turned around in the crowd and he said, who touched my clothes? But his disciples looked at him and they said, Jesus, who touched you? Do you not see the multitude thronging you? And you say, who touched me? Needless to say, the disciples here, they have no clue what's going on and you can't blame them. Here they are in a packed street when Jesus stops and he asks, hey, who touched me? Their response is kind of understandable. Who touched you? Like, are you kidding me? Like, you're in a small street with lots of people piled in. We can't keep them off of you. Everyone's touching you, Jesus. But we're told that he looked. He stops. He turns around. And he's looking, ignoring the disciples, to see her who had done this thing. Now, now note, he doesn't look to see who had done this thing. He looks to see her. Jesus knew. He knew what this woman was going through. He knew her plight, her condition. He knew who she was. And he turns to look, to examine. But we're told the woman, fearful, trembling, knowing what had just happened to her. She came and she fell down before Jesus. She pours her heart out. She tells Jesus the whole truth, the whole story. From start to finish, she pours out her heart and she says, and Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now, at first glance, this story, this encounter makes me feel awkward. And if you know me, for me to feel awkward, that's drastic. This makes me feel awkward. I mean, you have to think, why on earth would Jesus treat this woman in this way by calling her out in front of everyone? I mean, don't forget about her condition, the flow of blood. I mean, you can imagine that this is embarrassing, that this is not something she wants, like, exposed to the audience at large. Like for Jesus to stop and to turn and to look at her and to call her in front of the whole mob of people and to have her pour out her life story. Like for me, I'm just kind of awkward, especially when Jesus knew who she was. Jesus knew what had happened. She knew what had happened. Everything had already taken place. Like for me, I'm kind of left considering why would Jesus call out this woman? Like why not just leave the matter private? There are three reasons, though, why Jesus needed to call her out. Three important reasons. First, this woman needed to understand why she had been healed. You know, if left unanswered, it might have been easy for her to, to conclude that her healing had come as a result of her actions, that she had made this daring step, and as a result of this daring step, this daring act, this work that she had been healed as a consequence. She might have even been left to conclude that there was something 
mystical about Jesus' clothings or magical about his flowing robe and that the power came from the robe itself, like a healing cloth of some kind. Like Jesus stops because he wants to make sure that the healing isn't left to speculation. And he makes it clear, doesn't he? He says, daughter, what? Your faith has made you well. It's not your action. It's not your deed. It's not your work. It's not some magical prayer cloth that you can purchase with a 1-800 number. No, what healed you was not the holy water. It was faith. She had been saved by her faith. And so Jesus calls her out because she needs to understand why she had been healed. But secondly, there was an important lesson I believe the disciples needed to learn. In this crowded street of everyone bumping into Jesus, I'm sure that they just couldn't wrap their brain around why Jesus would stop and ask who's touching him. Like on the surface, it seems absurd, like an absurd question. Imagine their reaction when this woman emerges from the crowd and tells her story. I, I think at that point, the disciples feel a little awkward. Like, oh, now we know why he asked who touched her. Like, yeah, she touched him. And don't we feel like idiots? I believe that Jesus wanted to illustrate to the disciples a very important lesson that we this morning should be mindful of. It is indeed possible to bump into Jesus, to even hang around Jesus, or be associated with the people of Jesus without ever actually touching Jesus. You had this mob that was thronging Jesus. They were around Jesus. They were bumping into Jesus. You had this woman who touched Jesus. What was the difference? The difference was she had faith. I think sadly there are some people that hang around the things of the Lord, who come to church, who sit in a pew, who attend Bible study, prayer meetings. They are around the things of the Lord. They are part of the mob. But they fail to ever actually reach out and touch Jesus and have their lives changed because they lack faith. Jarius, though. Jarius. Don't forget... He's still in the scene. Jesus has paused. He's dealt with this woman. Jarius, I'm sure, is looking down at his clock, thinking, come on, we need to go. What's happening? Jesus, come on, woman, shut up. We got to get moving. You know, you can probably sense that there is an element of anticipation happening. You see, I think that the third reason it was important for Jesus to deal with this woman, to call her out, was not so Jairus could develop more patience. Like, I don't think that was Jesus' intention. The mob, the crowd thronging him, that probably was teaching Jairus enough patience. I think Jesus needed to call this woman out, needed to deal with this woman's need for this reason. Jairus' faith needed to be bolstered. And this was something Jesus knew. There are really two ways that you can view Jesus' interactions with this woman. 
There are some that see this story in the middle of this greater narrative as being unrelated. That Jesus' dealings with Jairus and his daughter are unrelated to his dealings with this woman and her particular ailment. The problem I have with this is, does anything really happen by accident with Jesus? I mean, really. To think that they're unrelated, I think, would be to miss the obvious. See, Jesus, in my opinion, intentionally orchestrated the interactions with this woman because he knew. He knew that Jairus' daughter was already dead. We're told that, verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who had said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to Jairus, do not be afraid. Only believe. If you observe the timetable, I don't think it's too far-fetched to believe that the little girl was already dead when Jairus made his initial request for Jesus to come to his home. Because Jesus knew that the news of the girl's death would arrive before they would ever be able to make it to her bedside, I am convinced Jesus intentionally choreographed his interactions with this woman for the express purpose of Jairus. That this wasn't an accident. I mean, really, the parallels between this woman and the daughter are too strong to be coincidental. I mean, think about it. Jairus came with a little faith, believing that Jesus could work a miracle. The woman came with a little faith, and what happened? Jesus worked a miracle. That should have bolstered Jairus' faith. But also think about it. Jairus' daughter, we're about to find out that she's 12 years old. Do you think it's an accident that this woman had been dealing with her affliction for how long? For 12 years. For the same period of time. Amazing. Also note that Jesus refers to this woman using a term that is completely unique to this occasion. He turns to her, and I don't know if you noticed it, he calls her daughter. Literally translated, he refers to her as a little girl. It's a term of endearment, a term of affection. The only time Jesus refers to anyone as his daughter, and he does so the moment before Jairus receives news that what? His daughter had passed away. It's as though Jesus is saying, I'm a father too, Jairus. And I know the love you have for your little girl because I have the same love for this woman. Doesn't it make sense why Jesus would say, do not be afraid, only believe. It's true that Jesus calls out this woman because she needed to understand her faith had made her well, that it wasn't a work. It's also true there was an important lesson the disciples needed to learn. But, and I find so much encouragement in this, I believe the entire scene took place to bolster Jairus' baby faith to handle the storm Jesus knew was on his horizon. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus, he knows the storms that are on our horizon. And what is he doing in the meantime? 
He's preparing us. He's speaking to us. He's bolstering our faith. He's equipping us with the tools necessary to handle the thing that he knows is coming, but we are unaware of. You know, some storms, you can see the clouds on the horizon. You know they're coming. You can batten down the hatches. But you know other storms, boom, they just happen. We're unaware, we're unprepared, we're caught off guard. But Jesus is never caught off guard. Jesus always knows what's coming. And he prepares us for this, just like he did Jairus. Well, verse 37, Jesus, we're told at this point, permits no one to follow him. He's going to continue on by himself with Peter, James, and John, obviously, Jairus as well. We're told that they came to the house and they saw a tumult. These people were weeping and they were wailing loudly. Since funerals would often happen the same day a person died, there is no doubt that friends, family, supporters had gathered at the home. This is a somber moment. This is tough. It's difficult. A 12-year-old girl, her life had been robbed. She had died tragically. Everyone was in shock. Emotions are running high. We're told that Jesus comes in. And he says to them, he looks at them. He says, why make this commotion? Why weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. We're told that they ridiculed him. Literally, they laughed him to scorn. They laughed him to scorn. Now, in some ways, I, I, I can kind of sympathize. Because imagine coming to a funeral, looking around, and being like, the dude's just taking a nap in the casket. Like, just back off. He's just sleeping. I'll handle it. I mean, you would be considered nuts. Like, they wouldn't let you anywhere close to the casket. I mean, the fact that they ridiculed him, that they laughed, that they doubted, that they were naysayers, is not surprising. But note that Jesus, he puts them all outside. Now, it, it, you might consider that to be a phrase that, that, you know, he asks them to leave, that he's courteous, that he's kind, he's a bit timid, that he's kind of like, hey guys, can y'all leave? I got some business to do. No, no, no. The idea, the language here, that he put them out literally means, or, or could be better translated, Jesus violently drove them from the house. Jesus, why, why are y'all weeping? Like, what's the commotion? What's going on? She's not dead. She's sleeping. They all are laughing. They're all goofing off. They're all doubting. And, and Jesus rips a lamp out of the wall and begins to go to town, like beating the daylights out of people, kicking them out of the house. He's breaking stuff and throwing. People are, are like, are on edge. They're running. Jesus has lost it. Grabbing the kitchen knife. Like, you want to mess with me? He puts them out. This violent is the idea here. He drives them out of the house. You know, it's interesting that this is not the last time we're going to see Jesus interact with naysayers in such a way. Jesus was not a wimpy guy. Sometimes he rolled up his sleeves, he pulled up his boots, and he kicked butt. We're told that after he kicks out the doubters, kicks out the naysayers, 
He takes the father, he takes Jairus and, his, and the mother, and he takes those who are with him, Peter, James, and John. So, so this is the crowd remaining. They enter the room where the child's laying. And Jesus walks over, and he takes the little girl by the hand. And he says to her, like I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall to have heard the words, Talitha Kumai or literally translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. So Jesus speaks some words, and what do we see happening? Immediately, the girl arose, and she gets up, she walks. At this point, we're told she's 12 years of age, and those there, Jarius, the mother, Peter, James, and John, they were overcome with great amazement. Now, I don't like reading the old King James, but sometimes the old King James has a way of saying something that I just love. It translates their reaction this way. They were astonished with great astonishment. I mean, they were so blown away that they just didn't even know what to do. The, the word here, literally, that they were thrown into a state of blended fear and complete wonderment. But Jesus commanded them strictly that no one should know what had happened. Not like they wouldn't know. She was going to go back to school. She was going to grow up and get married. Like, people knew she was dead. They were going to have to retract the obituary. It wasn't as though this could remain a secret, but Jesus is wanting to restrict the popularity, wanting to restrict the crowd. He knows that his destiny is the cross, but then he says that she should be given something to eat. Now, here's a closing observation from our story, and it is an awesome, an awesome story. Like he did with Jairus, sometimes God allows moments of absolute despair to move us out of our blissful ignorance into an honest examination of the truth. You might say that sometimes God allows desperate times to produce desperate faith. But understand, desperate faith demands something important. It demands, both with the woman and with Jairus, we see that it all begins with a person willing to take a risk. Our characters in our story, they were both desperate enough to put it all on the line. They were both desperate enough to come to Jesus in humility, in their moment of need. They were both willing to take a step of faith, convinced Jesus could work a miracle. And you know what? What do we learn? What should we observe? That Jesus always responds to steps of faith. The question you should consider, are you willing to take a risk? Has your situation become desperate enough that you can no longer ignore the obvious, but instead are willing to finally come and to reach out and grab hold of the hem of his garment? And a mob of people surrounding Jesus, there were only two who had an actual life-changing encounter with the Lord of life, this woman 
this poor woman. She had witnessed her life, the one robbed by the sickness, restored to health. Jarius had witnessed his little girl raised from death to life. This morning, if you want to see Jesus do a similar work in your life, I encourage you to have a faith desperate enough that though it might be risky, and though it might demand a humble and a broken spirit, and though a desperate faith might require that you cast out the doubters from your life as Jesus cast out those doubting his ability or his authority, I pray this morning you would have a faith desperate enough that it would bring you to the feet of Jesus. I've heard it said that desperate times call for desperate measures. Well, I'm of the opinion that desperate times call for desperate faith. And so, Father, with that, we ask 